0: it there is going downstairs to fight the good fight (laughs) bless their hearts yeah we just had a tremendous prayer meeting i say we just had a tremendous prayer meeting and uh we got the fellowship with God and His throne of grace um, on behalf of our church family and uh, all of you and your mission, the work God has for you to do, Um, all your families, all of our unbelieving family and friends, those around us that need Christ, that need the conviction of the Spirit, and they need a preacher, as we read in Romans 10, someone to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, so let's open with a moment of silent prayer to keep short accounts. And we'll continue the prayer meeting and pray for our unbelieving loved ones. Father, we praise you for the time that you've allotted to us in this life and the wisdom that you've given us to the extent that you have to know this life is not about us so that we don't waste it, that precious time, those little drops in that bottle of life quickly draining out. Thank you that we can tell you because you've given us the grace to know that this is about you. Thank you for showing us your mercies, your majesty, and your glory, and your word And helping us through the scriptures to look at life the way you want us to. The way you see it. In the limited way we do as your little children. Father, we are surrounded by unbelief. It is everywhere we turn. In our culture, in our day. That which ignites the imaginations of our people. That which directs the attention of our children. That which people are consuming their lives with in terms of work, play, pleasure, toil, Wherever they find themselves, Father, it is generally enshrouded in unbelief. Father, it is a lament that we bring to you for our family, our friends, our loved ones, those in our periphery who don't know Jesus Christ. Our love for them begins with our love for you. And that love motivates us to ask you on their behalf, bring your spirit into their lives in such a way that they are convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment, that they need eternal life, that there is no hope except Jesus Christ, and that they can enjoy what we enjoy, the way, the truth, and the life. Father, let us be part of that in the extent that you want us to be. Let us be part of the communication, but give us first the attitude that must attend it. Let us speak the truth, but in love. Let us be gentle and kind and patient and yet necessarily shrewd. And give us wisdom, even in this hour, to be about your business. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Volume 6 of Lewis Berry Chaffer's Systematic Theology, in eight volumes, seventh volume being the summarization, the eighth volume being an index and biographical sketch, so let me say in the six volumes of Chaffer's Systematic Theology, Volume 6 is committed to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting thing to do in a systematic theology. It was probably Chafer's focal concern in his ministry, even being the first uh, and best systematizer of dispensationalism as a theological system. So much of the emphasis for all of his forebears and all that have come after him because of their interest in the Bible has been on God the Holy Spirit. The biblical doctrine, especially as revealed in the New Testament, of the work of the Spirit in the life of every believer. And so, uh, what he entitled um, a large portion of that teaching was called, he called it the power to do good. He had uh, Romans 6, yield to the Spirit, yield to God, yield your to members to, to, to God as instruments of righteousness. Don't quench and don't grieve the Spirit as those. Aspects of behavior and attitude that would be uh, result in the filling of the Holy Spirit for him. Filling of the Spirit meant that you weren't uh, grieving the Spirit through personal sin, quenching the Spirit through presumption and uh, self-action, the energy of the flesh, and that you were, in fact, yielding to God, submitting to Him, uh, as in Romans chapter six. That was Chaffers' way, his paradigm for understanding the filling of the Spirit, and when he got to Um, what the Christian needs in terms of the power God provides. He called it the power to do good. And um, that's well stated theologically because no one is good but God. And the good you and I bring is filthy rags. Our righteousnesses are filthy rags in His sight. And yet God, who's in infinite righteousness, requires us to walk in the light as He Himself is in the light. We need horsepower. We need capacity and Capability that we don't bring in ourselves. And so I want to review a little bit of this with you tonight, not from chafer but from John and Paul, apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, carrying forth the teaching that Jesus committed to them in the Great Commission to command, to, to, to make disciples by teaching them to keep all that Jesus had commanded. Um, I've made it a study since about 2009. I started a little blog, I if y'all remember, Attention to Orders. Um, a very little blog. Was, I think it had 30-something little articles on it. And um, the idea was to look at the commands of the Scriptures and how they apply to us as ways to organize our lives. And it is, obviously, from a dispensational perspective, uh, taking into account what Paul says about the Mosaic Law in Galatians chapter 5, that if you're under the Spirit, if you're, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And... Um, that, that that's a distinction God made, we didn't make. But that the commands of the New Testament I discovered in searching imperative moods and just watching the chapters of the New Testament, there are more commands in the New Testament than there are in the Mosaic law that God has issued to the church. And for some people, this is a revelation because they misunderstand law and grace. Well, we're not under law, Paul says, we're under grace, so that means that we're not obeying the commands of God or something. Uh, Antinomianism, and the whole point of this this exercise is they know your whole life is organized whether you're in in covenant Israel under the Mosaic Law or if you're in the church and you're uh, you're adopted as sons and um, given freedom to serve Him. However, you find yourself the commands of God organize your lives, and so so much of the New Testament is commands, and I want to show you the rationale. I think. Uh, from jesus that best uh, explains how to approach the commands of the lord jesus christ through his apostles in the new testament so i'm calling uh, i'm calling john chapters 13 through 17 the upper room discourse the upper room discourse and it is a unique piece of uh, instruction in the Bible were you guys here for that for the verse by verse through john 13 through 17 i think so no okay well just because you're here we're going to do it again soon but again this was this teaching of J- jesus to his disciples and the night he was betrayed was a revelation to me the only people in the room are believers now 12 disciples one of them is not a believer his name is judas iscariot And in the lead-up to this instruction of Jesus Christ, where he washes his disciples' feet, Judas leaves. The only people in the room are believers in Christ. They do not have the Holy Spirit yet, but they will. And so this makes them a special category, especially after Pentecost. These are going to become the first church-age believers. They're the disciples who are going to become the apostles and we read about the event from one of them in his own recollection of the words of Jesus Christ and especially the teaching of John chapters 14 through 16 so you have the object lesson and summary commandment in chapter 13 and you have the high priestly prayer in chapter 17 and in the middle those three chapters 14 15 16 are kind of the bulk of the teaching and it's thematically dense but one thing that Jesus really emphasizes is his departure and replacement Jesus Christ is speaking to those that he walked with and talked with for his three and a half year ministry and that time of his service to his father and revealing the father And in training these disciples, this time of this ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was a precious time of equipping and engagement. You can read about the equipping in places like Matthew 10 where he's talking to them about what it means to be a disciple. I think Matthew, the point of Matthew is to explain, the Gospel of Matthew I believe is written to to a Jewish Christian readership. I think it's the first Gospel that was written. I think it's to a Jewish Christian, not a Jewish unbelieving readership, It's written to a Jewish Christian readership to explain a couple things. The first is, as you watch Matthew, what happened in the kingdom offer that they've rejected the kingdom and now we don't have the kingdom. It was not a redefinition of the kingdom to mean something other than that which was expected from the Old Testament. I recently heard a a, a, a Jewish man, an Orthodox Jewish man say that um, you can't take Jesus as the Messiah because uh, we expected a literal fulfillment of the kingdom prophecies. And we say, oh, yes, you can. And we do expect a literal fulfillment of kingdom prophecies. But see, what happened was Israel rejected the king and they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And then he started talking to them in parables. And... That was the turning point in Matthew chapter 13 is the turning point in this offer of the kingdom. Five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom platform for what it is for Israel to have the king present and to have him ruling them as their king. And that's why it's an exposition and part of the Mosaic law. And that's why it emphasizes the righteousness of God, which goes beyond even the behaviors of the hand-washing Pharisees all the way up to the elbow. But they're not righteous. They don't have imputed righteousness. And God says, You have to exceed this. And so Matthew is answering that question What about the kingdom? And even at the end, 24 through 25, when are you coming? What's the, what's the sign of your coming? And when will these things come to pass? In the end of the age? And he answers one of those questions. And he tells them about what we read about in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, the tribulation. He tells them what, what to expect. And. Um, So Matthew answers some questions that are specific to an expectation of Messiah from the Old Testament, but it does something else. It constantly tells us what God expects for those who are disciples of Jesus Christ. I don't think you tell an unbeliever to give everything up, to turn everything away as the means by which he receives eternal life. I don't think that's the message, especially if I'm reading Paul, who is not contradicting Matthew. But for Jewish Christians who have eternal life, they need to live it. And they need to recognize that everything they have is God's. So I, don't com- I never will ever suggest that you work to receive salvation. I would never offer an unbeliever a works package that could get him there. In fact, the rich young ruler is told to sell everything he's got and give to the poor because Jesus Christ is ferreting out how he hasn't actually kept the righteousness of the law because no one has, because Jesus Christ is the righteous one who fulfills the law, and only through him can we have a satisfactory righteousness to God. So the law makes us have to have a Savior. And the man thought he was righteous, but he wasn't. He had much possessions. Anyway, the, the high calling of discipleship is throughout. It's little chunks throughout Matthew, where Jesus is teaching them what it means to be his disciple. And now he's talking to his disciples. And he's trained them about these expectations of forsaking family, if needs be, of letting everything go, including self, for Christ's sake, so that you gain everything. And if you've sacrificed everything for me, then you get into heaven, he doesn't say. He says, if you've sacrificed everything for me, then you'll receive many more things in time, and you'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel in Matthew 16, he says. Now, That's the training of the 12, some of it, through the gospel narratives. Now, when you get to the last lesson, that's the upper room discourse. It's the last message of Jesus Christ before he went to the cross and paid for our sins. It's his last time in normal operations before going tactical, before going to the actual mission of the cross resurrection, ascension, or post-resurrection appearances, and then the ascension. He taught them some after the resurrection, I'm saying, but this is the end before the cross. And it's very important that we get that because when Jesus died on the cross, what the disciples largely saw was a man being killed by Romans on a cross, and they didn't get it. We get that from the resurrection stories. Every Easter, we hear about everybody's afraid and doubts and doesn't believe when they get a report that Jesus has risen. They don't believe what he told them, and they don't believe what they're being told by witnesses. See, they didn't understand. And so this is a major event that Jesus would teach them before the night in which he would conquer sin and crush the serpent's head by dying for our sins on the cross. And so that's really your setup for the last teaching of Jesus before he left. And a lot of what he says is, I'm leaving. I'm going away. But I'm not leaving you without help. I'm not leaving you alone. I'm leaving you with another paraclete. Some translated comforter, some helper. The New American Standard translates helper. And so this work of God on these disciples is a, a, a process that's been going on But now it's going to continue. And I believe that's why we should look at this instruction of the Lord Jesus, which is chronologically prior to anything written in the New Testament, as the seed of all the instruction of Jesus Christ through his apostles and prophets that that were under those apostles after Jesus' death. Which means whatever James says, whatever Paul says, whatever Jude says, whatever Matthew says, this is to be seen as instruction bearing the imprimatur of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is his apostles, his sent ones with his uh, commission to go make disciples. That's why I think most of, uh, of all of the New Testament is written to believers, In some cases, the explanation is, what about Israel? In some cases, how are we to understand the law for Israel? And I think that's what's going on again in the Sermon on the Mount. As I've taught, I've got, what do we do? Six or seven months on the Sermon on the Mount. Six or seven months of Sundays on the Sermon on the Mount. Which is, uh, what is it doing? It's showing you the righteousness of God encoded in the law. But without any law, there's been a righteousness of God before God ever said a word to Israel. Righteousness is the character quality. The law is the showcase. It's the illustration. It's the demonstration. It's the expectation. And so the question is, in what way is it showcasing that? Now, when we get to chapter 14 of John, the Lord Jesus has given a new commandment. He has used Mosaic law type language. 1333, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me and... As I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And so a new commandment I give to you. That's 1334, a new commandment. The language there for commandment is what the Septuagint will translate for 10 commandments for the Mosaic law. This is legal forensic language, like the legal language of Sinai. The expectations of God for his people. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When the Apostle Paul meets the disciples of John the Baptist, they don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. We're going to hear in John 14 that that commandment can only be fulfilled in in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. They don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. They're disciples of John the Baptist. They're not disciples of Jesus Christ. Paul baptizes them. Because to make disciples, we baptize into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and we teach them to keep all that Jesus commanded. So what we're trying to say here is that there's something new that is being established in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an additional revelation. That's why I believe what Jesus says in the writing of John. John records Jesus' words in John 13, 34 about the new commandment. I think that's what Paul is referencing when he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ the law of christ is that we would love to the standard that jesus christ has loved the self-sacrificial christian standard it is not to love your neighbor as yourself it is beyond loving neighbor as self because he says it's a new commandment leviticus nineteen eighteen says love your neighbor as yourself jesus says love one another as i've loved you and, that, and, and in another, how else is it a new commandment? John First John will say, "He gave us a new, but it's not new because he's been with you from the beginning, meaning he's been with you since the beginning of your Christian walk. Jesus said it to, on the night he was inaugurating the church age with this teaching. But, it's, but it's, it is new because it wasn't given before Jesus inaugurated the church age with this teaching. So this is a prophecy of what we enjoy now. This is the discussion of what is going to be the new order in the spirit. And that's why you can't even take the gospel of John as written to unbelievers. The gospel of people say, well, it's a pamphlet to evangelize people. Well, there are places in John that can help you with that. And there is the the summary statement at the end. These have been written that you might believe, but it's the signs of John. The big teaching discourse in John 13 through 17 is not to evangelize someone it's to tell believers what is the order of our day what are we doing and so my contention is that when jesus gives commandments and says keep my commandments he's talking in context about the things that he's actually commanded them in his earthly ministry regarding this new order and the summary is love now on love being the summary from john 13 34 and 35 and that and and just letting god have his way I'm going to hold the place. I'm going to flip over to Galatians chapter 5 where he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The work of the Spirit in the believer where we're getting the effects of God, the Holy Spirit's indwelling and filling ministries in you will be these character qualities. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, general self-control against such things there's no law. Now that's in context of Paul listing sins, because he's been talking about the works of the flesh, and it's the Holy Spirit versus your sinful flesh in this chunk of scripture. He says in verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, immorality, impurity, sensuality, those are all sexual sins. Idolatry, sorcery, those are those are like the occult type things. Enmities, strife, jealousy, those are your church sins. Uh, Albert, you know, it's okay to do those in church. Enmity, jealousy, strife it happens in every Baptist or Brethren or any, any kind of church, except this church. Disputes, of uh, anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. He's listing things that the flesh produces. Now he's listing things the spirit produces. But I believe he starts with love because if you look in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4, Love is described by these other qualities. Love rejoices. Love suffers long. It's patient. Love is kind. Those are all fruits of the Spirit listed here as the same Greek words. I think this quality of God's love expressed through us, like Paul says in Romans 5 5 that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit. I believe this is what he's talking about. It's Christian life, it is the character of Jesus Christ expressed in us. In this same context, which will conclude with against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires or lusts. If we live by the Spirit, now listen to it, this is Galatians 5.25. I think it's a great summary verse for how to think about whether you're a believer or whether you're in fellowship as a believer. Whether you're a believer who's justified and declared righteous by the blood of Christ when you first believed, whether you're regenerate, or whether you're walking with God as a believer, having fellowship with him or walking in the light. Here's the issue. If we live by the spirit, that would be the person that's a believer in Christ and therefore is regenerate by the Holy Spirit. Let us also walk by the spirit. That means that it's possible, listen, it's possible not to walk by the spirit if you do in fact live by the spirit using the language he's using there. And I don't think it's necessarily technical language. He's saying, if you're regenerate, then live it. Then walk by the Spirit. If you have life, then live the life, if I might say it that way. And so it's a command. That is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul. And these are the commandments that he's given us. There's hundreds of them. There are more than 1,100 imperative moods. Now, you can't just count the imperative mood because sometimes that's used in a way that wouldn't be a command that applies to you. But, Most of those probably are applicable. By the way, when someone says hello in Greek, they say kireta, which means to rejoice, unless you're greeting someone and then you're saying hello, and that's how it works. It's like, um, do you even know what hello means? I mean, it starts with hell, and that's not what we mean. When we say hello to someone, we're just saying hello. We don't know what it means, we just say it. It means I'm saying greetings to you in English that are, are... suitable for most occasions hello right we don't know what it means well that kireta means rejoice and it's it's an imperative it tags as imperative when someone says hello when jesus greets the disciples he says Kireta after the resurrection he goes through walks through a door and they forgot to open it it was okay resurrection body and he says "Kireta," and it doesn't mean i'm resurrected everyone rejoice it means hello everybody but it's funny how John does the double meaning because we are rejoicing that Jesus is resurrected. Anyway, a fun little description of, uh, of the, the, the Greek idiom in the Bible. Now, I'm, I'm doing all this setup to make the case that we have a new order of expectation that is beyond our capability. It turns out that for the people that God elected, Israel... For the people he elected, the expectations that he gave them. I mean, he started with just 10 things. And then Moses went up to the mountain to get the rest of it. But they heard the 10 words, as it says in, in Hebrew, the 10 words. We call them 10 commandments. They heard, all, everybody heard the 10 things. And while Moses is getting the exposition and the further case law and all the stuff that he got on Mount Sinai, they are committing a violation of one through four. And six, seven... At least. They're already demonstrating that they, they are not capable of fulfilling the law. Now, talking about capability, well, they didn't do what God said. Do you, do you really think they couldn't? Well, I, I, I know they didn't. I believe this is what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. The righteousness <laughs> expected in the law calls for every one of us to hit our face and say, God, I, I'm a broken sinner. Save me. That's why the sacrifices, they all represent Jesus Christ, his sacrifice. And so when you get to this instruction that Jesus is giving, he's telling them about the new order. And so I'm going to skip, I would love to read the whole thing with you again, but that's all been translated verse by verse and we've got it all archived and probably need to do it again, do a better job. But let's go to verse 16 and what I think is the defining feature of the present age in which you and I live. What I'm saying based on John 7, 38 and 39, I'm saying that this, that we're about to hear from Jesus Christ had never happened before. This was the new, this is the new order. And it's every day to us, we don't know any different. But what the Bible helps us do is appreciate what we have. It helps us appreciate the, the privileges we have. When you're a rich kid and you're born to wealth and you live in wealth, you don't even know wealth. You just, you're a fish in water. You don't know you're in water. But when you see the contrast, when you see, oh, this is what was necessary to get that wealth, and you have to get your fingers dirty to get in there and, and experience some of that, you, you get an, an appreciation. And this is my prayer for me, my prayer for you. As rich kids, as, as people uh, capitalized with the earnest of the Holy Spirit, as Paul calls the Spirit giving, having been given to us in Ephesians 1.14, as people who have this beginning of the inheritance, the first fruits of the Spirit, let us appreciate what we have. Let us not take it for granted. And so Jesus is telling them about his departure. By the way, I take verses 1 through 3 of chapter 14. I'm going to prepare a place. i am come back to get you and bring you to myself. I take that as a reference to Jesus coming for his church. Before 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18, we have John 14, 1 through 3. And I'm expecting to go to my father's house, to his father's in my father's house, and I'm expecting to go there uh, in a resurrection body for a judgment and, uh, and an uh, equipping for further service in the coming kingdom. Now, when you get to verse 16, after, by the way, Jesus tells them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 15, context, love one another as I've loved you. He's given a new order, a new way to think that requires, and this is the problem of, we're talking about imitation of Christ. This is the problem of the imitation of Christ. Who here is a lover like Jesus? Who's got it? Who's got the horsepower to pull that off? We would have to be egomaniacs or really ignorant of who Jesus is to say, oh yeah, I got this. Love is, do you love? Yeah, I got it. Self-sacrificially all the way to the cross? No problem. No, we'd have to say, I want to aspire to be able to think about possibly ever- Accomplishing that, but I'm not that. I'm not a self sacrificial lover. Not to the standard that Jesus loved one another as I've loved you. Like, cogitate on that a little bit. This is high voltage. Well, the answer to the question of verse 15 if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus, how do I keep your commandment? How do I love to your standard? By the way, I. Let's read verse eight. I, I just love it. I, <laughs> the room discourse is so fantastic. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, for some people, that'll be a fodder. <laughs> pardon the pun. That'll be fodder to reject Trinity. They'll say, well, see, Jesus just said he's the Father. Because if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father which misses the whole point of John, one of his great themes is that Jesus came to reveal the Father. He tells the Lord, his Father, in chapter 17 in his prayer, I've done the work you sent me to do. And then he exposits that that is to reveal the Father to the disciples and to connect them. So if you've seen the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've had the Father, the, the Godhead revealed to you, had God, the Father, revealed to you in a way that our little finite brains would be able to understand and receive something of without exploding. We want to see him. Just show, show us something that'll blow our minds literally is what Philip asks. Jesus says, I, the way the channel of revelation for you has been given and it's my ministry to you. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? See, there's the Trinity. There is fellowship between the Father and the Son. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Now see, I'm a believer in those words, but I don't believe I'm gonna raise the dead. I don't think he's doing that right now. It's popular since about 1901 for people to say that he's doing that. the TV guys all say that. They're raising the dead and slaying people in the spirit and really not doing either of those things. So what's he talking about greater works? Well, the works that God actually wants us to do, the entire body of Christ is able to do it. And so he trained the 12. He revealed the Father to the group that was prepared, that was able to receive because they... They opened their hearts. The Father drew them. There was, a, there was an opening. That's been going on since Jesus left. We've been taking the words of Christ through the apostles and revealing the Father to people. And these are the works. <clears throat> he will do these things because I go to the Father. Wherever you, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name i will do it if you love me you'll keep my commandments so we have a prayer life we have a living out what god has commanded us what jesus has, has instructed and now the power to do this awesome ministry that he says amounts to loving him by keeping his commandments i will ask the father see back to that whole theme of the son asking and doing the father's bidding and he will give to you another helper that he may be with you forever. I pray to the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, when I pray. I ask the Father in the name of the Son what I want, expecting the Son to do what the Father wants him to do. I try to pray as a Trinitarian, one who believes in the Father, Son, and Spirit. I don't pray as though. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are not all together listening, but I address my heavenly Father in his heavenly throne room when I pray to him. To his right, as I'm facing the throne of grace, my left is seated a human being next to the Ancient of Days, next to the Majesty God the Father. There is his Son, as we read in Revelation chapter 3, seated on his Father's throne, not David's throne, on his Father's throne. In that Revelation 3, we're told that if we overcome, then we'll sit with him on his throne like he was granted to sit with his father on his throne. Two different thrones. And so that's the idea in prayer. You're going to God the Father in the name of the Son. What does it mean to go in his name, by the way? Have you thought about that? Ask in my name? What does it mean to go to the Father in the name of the Son? Imagine imagine a, a very exclusive high-rise hotel the highest rise of all high-rise hotels and at the top is the five-story penthouse the hundred the hundred thousand through the hundred thousand fifth story is the penthouse of this hotel that is the abode of the boss you do not have credentials to get into that abode you do not have access to that place there is no way for you to get onto that elevator you know, the the elevator buttons only go up to the eighty fifth thousandth floor. You can't get to the 100,000th through the hundred thousand and fifth floor because you don't have the special little key card that gets you access to that upper echelon of access. You don't you, you can't go there. So you're free to go where you can, but you can't go there. We don't rate. We don't have cred. We do not have portfolio to go in the presence of infinite righteousness. Now, Isaiah saw a vision of God and did what I think we should all do. He hid his face. He was horrified at the contrast. God didn't say, you're a sinner. God just showed up. Isaiah said, I'm a sinner because of the immediate contrast. He showed up in the wrong place. He was was out of place in the presence of God. That's the idea. And that's the fear of the Lord, I think, a sense of this. So when we go in the name of the Son and our requests, I think what we're doing is taking that basis of access that Jesus Christ has with his Father, we're taking that ourselves. He's given that to us. He gave us his card. He said, come on up. And he's gonna develop that thought in this context. He actually brings that out. You're not, you're not slaves, you're my friends because I've told you what I'm doing. And, th- and there's a fellowship that I've always had with my father. Nobody else gets this. It's me and my father. You need righteousness. You need the coin of the realm to have this fellowship. I'm bringing you in. You're part of this now. That's abiding in Christ. But he says, he says I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may uh, be with you forever. Just a couple of observations on this verse. The son asks the father. This answers any questions we might have about whether or not we should pray based on our awareness of God's omniscience. If God knows everything, do I really have to ask him? Yeah. Because... One thing you're doing when you ask someone is bringing them some information. That's not all you're doing. That's one thing you're doing. There's something else you're doing that's relational. That's really the issue. So yeah, if Jesus, the eternal God, the Son in the flesh is asking the Father, then you need to ask the Father too. He, the Father, will give you another helper. There's a debate that's been raging in the state churches for a thousand years about where did the Holy Spirit come from? Did we get him from the Father or from the Father and the Son? And the Eastern Church said only the Father and the, Eastern, and the Western Church, the Roman Church, said the Father and the Son. The filioque controversy. And we're like, really? That's going to be the division where you're going to, the popes are going to, uh, what, what's the word? Exercise each other? What do you do when you kick someone out? Ex- yeah, they excommunicated each other, extradited each other. They were they were kicked they kicked each other out of the body of Christ. <laughs> That's power right there. Um, but see they did it over this question of where did the Holy Spirit come from for who got who sent the Holy Spirit, and there are places where it says the Father does it, like here. There are other places where the Son does it, and so uh, it's it's really silly controversy. But because um, the Romans were right about that. But anyway, He will give you another Helper. Now this word Helper is a bad translation. I. I don't know if there's a good translation for it. The word is paraclete. That's not paraclete or parakeet. That's not a budgie regard. Okay. That's, a, that's paraclete. And what is a paraclete? Well, in Greek, parakletos is somebody that is called alongside. That's the etymology of the word. And that's the idea is that they're with you. It's somebody who's with you. You have either called them to your side or I think in this case, they've called you to their side. Hey, come here. I got something I want to teach you, and they're your teacher. That would probably be the best translation for our, if you're going to do like a, a just a, a one-word translation for parakletos, it'd probably be teacher, because Jesus is their discipler. He's, he's discipling them, teaching them, and this is their next par- paraclete. In fact, the peripatetic ministry is that you walk and listen as the parakletos speaks. And so Jesus is their teacher now, the Holy Spirit is their teacher. So comforter is straight out. It is great comfort if you get an appetite for the word of God, for the spirit to teach you. It is great comfort, but that's a secondary consideration for what the parakletos is actually doing. And there's another thing that I want to focus on is this word forever. I think that the ministry of the spirit is not just for your life as a believer until you die. I think you have the Holy Spirit with you forever because of verses like this. It's like the question of, um, I once heard it described that the, during the period of the Incarnation, during the time of the Incarnation was a way of, so some theologians would describe when Jesus Christ was on earth in his earthly body from you know, Christmas when he was born until the Ascension during the time of the Incarnation. What's wrong with that? Well, the Incarnation started at Christmas, but it never ends. He'll forever be the God-man. So you can't say during the time of the Incarnation. You've got to say something else like during His earthly ministry or something, right? During that time of His sojourn here before the um, Ascension. Um, so, so the Holy Spirit is with you forever. And uh, that should be something from verse 16 that you take to the bank and, uh, and draw, deposit, draw, draw draft on that deposit forever, that is the spirit of truth. One name or designation for God, the Holy Spirit, is the spirit of truth. With, and that goes with Paraclete, the one who's teaching you, because what he's going to give you is the truth. Now, who is he talking to specifically? The apostles. Everything we get out of this passage is derivative, secondary, like we're apostolic. So we fall under this umbrella. First John, 1 John 1, 1.3, our fellowship is with him. And so we're extending that to you through this teaching. The Holy Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus' words are Hebraic. They're cryptic all through this discussion. And they, I think by design, draw out our reflection. They never contradict Paul and Paul never contradicts them, but they talk differently about the same things. Because... It doesn't see him or know him. So the relationship you have with the Holy Spirit will not be like the types of relationships we have that we're used to. The mundane earthly things where we're talking and engaging and hugging and feeling and these kinds of things. We want those sensory things to happen, but that's not the nature of the relationship, I take it. The world can't receive it. It doesn't know him. It doesn't see him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I believe what's happening here, based on this place and other places like Hebrews chapter 12, where Jesus is the pioneer of our faith, I think Jesus Christ was indwelled with the Spirit in a prototype fashion. I think He walked in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish all that the Father sent Him to do, and then He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we would accomplish all that God wants us to do. And that's a special bond we have with the Lord Jesus, because he had a unique work of the Spirit, and we now have a unique work in this age of the Spirit. And it's to accomplish all that God wants us to accomplish. So, He abides with you, I believe, means one of two things. Well, probably both of two things. The, the Lord Jesus has been with them, and He is empowered in His earthly ministry by the Holy Spirit. You can look that up in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, and Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Okay, the Holy Spirit, person, third person of the Trinity, and power of the humanity of Christ. When they said Jesus was casting out demons in the power of Satan, what did Jesus call that? Matthew 12, what did he call it? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The works Jesus was doing and the power of the Spirit were being called the works of Satan. And so Jesus said, you're talking about the works of the Spirit. So just, I mean, that's the power of the earthly ministry of Christ and certainly revealing him as deity. And yet it's the, humanity of Christ and the power of the Spirit in many of his miracles, if not most of them. And so here it is. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I believe in you is the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit that is our birthright, the moment we trust in Christ. I think it is the universal experience of the church-age believer um, since not too long after Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. There's a transitional period in Acts. It is a transitional period. You have to acknowledge that there's a major transition that's happening, especially in Acts chapter two when the Holy Spirit comes, as promised, Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power or Acts 1:8. Power from God, the Holy Spirit. So there's your transitional moment, but there's a process that happens where there's, in some cases, a period between faith in Christ and the reception of the Holy Spirit. In some cases, there's laying on of hands so the person receives the Holy Spirit. But by the time you get to Galatians, if these people are believers, then they have the Holy Spirit. You can look that up in Galatians 3, 1 through 5. If they're believers, they have the Holy Spirit. And so there is this transition that's happened. So by the time it comes to us, this idea that there's this two-step process where, yeah, I believe in Christ, I've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, but I don't yet have the indwelling of the Spirit, which well, they'll also equate with baptism, and it's not the same thing, or the filling of the Spirit, and that's not the same thing. And they'll say, well, it's all just the second work of emotion that I had when I you know, got whomped up into a frenzy. And they call it, they blame that on the Holy Spirit, and I think it's a form of blasphemy. Now, when you believe you received the Holy Spirit, and again, you can the proof of that uh, is the, Paul's earliest epistle, somewhere on 48 AD, um, just a few years, just a decade plus after the cross. Paul is saying, You have the Spirit if you're believers, in Galatians 3. All right, so <clears throat> you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. This is indwelling of the Spirit. The abiding of the Spirit with them is his presence in the Savior, in that special ministry to the Twelve. Anybody else who's around Jesus had that work of the Spirit that was with them. But also the Holy Spirit, according to Second Peter chapter one, has inspired every scripture. They, all the prophets were led along by the Spirit of God. Every word we have written and every prophetic utterance of the prophets that wasn't written was uh, outbreathing from God the Holy Spirit. And so that was the work of the Spirit with them. But it wasn't the indwelling we have today. It couldn't have been, because of John chapter seven. I'll read it to you not the whole chapter. In John chapter 7, 37, we looked at it recently in this study, Jesus quotes Leviticus 23. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is always cryptic. He's always saying things that take some reflection. And we have to think about it. We have to pray about it. We have to reflect on it and study it out. And when you come to understand what he means, it's a revelation. Well, thankfully, in this case, I mean, I'm very grateful to rest on the explanation john gives he's talking about the holy spirit he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet because jesus was not yet glorified well of course the holy spirit already existed so it has to be given he wasn't yet given we didn't have the holy spirit yet because jesus wasn't glorified yet which exactly follows the ascension and then 10 days and then pentecost the coming of the spirit And that had already happened when John wrote this and his editorial remark is helping you connect the dots between Jesus' ministry on the last day of the feast, what he said, and what we're experiencing. They did not have the Holy Spirit until the day of Pentecost, and that's what Jesus is talking about. And I call it the defining feature of this age, just one little tidbit in John chapter 14. If we'll turn the page, I want to talk about the principle of distinctly Christian capability, this is the part of the new order that has to arrest us and humble us and make us pray that we never do anything in the energy of the flesh and never take anything for granted that we're, we're getting it done on our own steam. The principle of distinctly Christian capability. And since I've exegeted and, and worked thoroughly through John 13 through 17 in exhaustive detail, I don't know how many lessons that series is, but it's a bunch of them. Let's look at just verse 4, where you have a command of the Lord Jesus Christ. A command of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. That's that concept of fellowship. Abiding means not believing. It's not the same. It's not a synonym for believing. Some, a lot of people want to just jam everything together. The Reformed tradition, very much like the Catholic tradition, will jam everything into one package and say, if it's got fire, that's hell. If it's got judgment, that's uh, that's the last judgment. If it's got um, something with Jesus, it's belief or belief works or something. No, he's talking to Christians and he's telling us how to get it right. Abide in me is that part Paul mentions in Galatians five twenty five when he says, "Let us walk by the Spirit." This is the Christian spiritual experience that we're talking about. Walking in the light as he himself is in the light. Abide in me and I in you. This is my definitional passage to understand the filling of the spirit or the Christian spiritual life. The person that's spiritual is radically depending on the power that the Lord Jesus Christ provides. And we have a specific explication of that power in this passage. He gave us the Holy Spirit. So depending on Christ abiding in Christ as the true vine so that we, the branches, bear fruit. It's bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So it's distinctly Christian. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So you and I can derive from this verse, if I'm right about abiding, meaning staying connected in a dependent way, for the nutrients and capabilities provided so that we can do what we're designed to do to bear fruit if i'm right about that and it is a command i am right about that you can't argue with the language it's it's a command that means you then have a choice and there's even a warning in the passage not to not to to, to disconnect It's where the imagery breaks down people want to make this inevitable a, a true christian who's really a believer will inevitably abide well, why was galatians and first corinthians second corinthians written these people are called saints they, have, they live by the Spirit. Why are they not walking by the Spirit? Why do, they, why do I need to be corrected and brought up short when I don't abide? Well, because it's a choice. And he gives us this responsibility Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And now he's going to slam the door on human energy. I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. That's the first part. It's a promise you will bear much fruit if you stay connected to Jesus Christ. If you depend upon him, if you walk by the spirit, if you stay saturated with the word, that's to be filled by the spirit. And therefore, having believed what he said, do it because you're not abiding if you're not doing it. Then you will bear much fruit. But then the other part of the the promise is just as powerful. I think for me, oh, it's powerful for you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. I think that's a ringing judgment on all those works of the flesh that aren't abiding in Christ. I'm going to tell you a tale of two soup kitchens (laughs) real quick. Soup kitchen, it's not a story, it's an illustration. Soup kitchen A over here, uh, that's your right. It's over here, soup kitchen A on your left. They are giving food to those in need. They cook it. They prepare it, they serve it with a smile, and most importantly, it tastes pretty good. Soup Kitchen B, you're right, my left. Soup Kitchen B serves a really delicious bowl of soup, almost as good as Soup Kitchen A, Maybe, maybe as good. They deliver with a smile, they don't complain, and it is a beautiful presentation if you the recipient tried this soup or this soup you would say somebody has in both cases a grandma that is good at making soup you with me we would that is some jewish penicillin as they say that is some awesome soup kitchen product but there is a massive difference between these two soup kitchens that have from all our experience the same product And the difference is what the Lord Jesus Christ thinks of them. You see, Soup Kitchen A over here on your left uh, does not for a moment, the people there do not for a moment consider the one they serve or the power in which they are to serve. They are not worried about Christ. They are here to help their fellow man. They're altruists, And they are not abiding in Christ as they're doing these things. But Soup Kitchen B over here on your right is led by people that start the work with prayer. They have an attitude of humble submission to God. And they're seeking to do his work according to what he said for his sake so that he is glorified. And that means going and taking care of people. That means doing the work of caring for the poor, but it's for his sake, for his glory, in his power. And the difference between those two soup kitchens isn't the taste of the soup. It's not whether the the homeless got fed. It's whether the Lord Jesus Christ said it was much fruit or it was nothing. And if you don't think this way, if I don't think this way, then we're not theologically focused. We're not considering God. We're worried about man, we're worried about outcomes, we're worried about the things that we judge to be good. We're not thinking about what God says. Jesus says it's all about the spiritual life. Abide in me, and I in you, and you'll bear much fruit. See, I think this statement, you can do nothing, is a judgment on my works of the flesh. I don't want to waste any time. What a shame. Am I putting down the soup kitchen? Am I nasty about these people? No. I, I want these people to, to crack a book. The book. Let's start in John chapter 3. Because if they're social gospel people, then they need to believe in Christ as their Savior. They haven't even understood the call of God on sin. They don't understand sin. Or the need for a Savior. They need Christ and they need to do the works that He prepared for them in advance if they believe. So... Um, I think this is very important to, to get the difference between the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit through the believer as we abide in Christ. Paul sounds just like the Lord Jesus when he talks about the Philippians' success and his expectation for further success. This is the great salutary letter of Philippians where these young Christians are getting it right and they're um, wonderfully equipping the ministry Paul has to the Corinthians, to the people on uh, the Roman province of Achaia, these people from the Roman province of Macedonia. He says, "So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, see the relationship we have to the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord is obedience, faithful, believing obedience. And so, when how do we do that? We listen to His apostles and do what they say." Just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out, not work for, not work up, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have life in the Spirit now. Walk by the Spirit. Work out your salvation. Live it out. I think the commands of the New Testament, for the most part, especially in the epistles, the instruction, the the, the teaching portion that helps us teach all that Jesus commanded, I think the commands of the scriptures are to believers. You believers need to do this, and there's no question he's talking to Christians here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, you're not saved by your work. You're saved by the work of Christ, but you are saved, so you work. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. 2, 8, and 9 establish that it's the cross work of Christ and not your works at all that save you. For by grace are you saved through faith. But 2, 10, Ephesians 2, 10 says, we are workmen because we're created unto good works because we're God's workmanship so work out your salvation with fear and trembling now look at this for it is God who is working in you God is the worker in you the inner geo, uses a participle to describe God it doesn't say the third person of the Trinity but I think he means God the Spirit if I had to pick one of the three I'd say God the Holy Spirit and interestingly I can show you in the upper room discourse the indwelling of all three persons of the Trinity 14.21 14.21 says, get it right, and my Father and I will make our abode with you. 14.23 says the same thing. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit will be in you. So you have the indwelling of all three persons of the Trinity. That conditional thing is what we call fellowship. It is for, for it is God who is working in you, both to will, the leo. I don't think that's a good translation in the theological milieu I live in today because so much theology has been written about God's will, man's will, volition, will, will, will. I think if you look up all these uses of phileo in the New Testament, especially in Paul, you get the word want or prefer or desire. Will, we think, means decide beforehand from eternity past, and, and we, get a, we get kind of fuzzy about that. This word means you want something. What does God want for you is the question. And see, the Holy Spirit working in you helps you want that, right? Even when you don't feel like wanting it, the Holy Spirit helps you want it. And sometimes that's your prayer. God, help me want what you want. He is working in you both to want and to do, to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the power of the Christian spiritual life. This is your birthright as a believer in Jesus Christ into a new family with a new priesthood, being the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the awesome privilege we have to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body of Christ called out ones, the ecclesia. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this power. Thank you for the reminder of it tonight. The privilege that we enjoy. So many things we've considered, Father, and so many things are challenging to us. And we're going to go into our lives and make decisions. We're going to decide whether to be angry when we have a challenge. We're going to decide whether to Work hard or slack off. We're going to decide what to do with all the challenge and vicissitudes that you put in front of us. And I pray that you would put it on our hearts to remember that we are in abiding in Christ, depending on you, walking by your spirit, saturated with your word, therefore filled by him. We're more than conquerors. We're capable of success by the power you supply. We can even love to a standard we could never even imagine because of your spirit working in us. Don't let, it, don't let us take it for granted. Don't let us neglect our so great salvation, but consider it and cherish it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.